There's no better time to feast in our country than on Thanksgiving Day. Um, and there's also no worse time to fast. Yet for four straight years in high school, I found myself every Thanksgiving Day trying to fast. Um, if you don't know anything about wrestling, because I was a wrestler, um, one of the main components of the sport is that you have to weigh a certain amount before you can compete, which usually involved, um, for me, um, cutting and fasting all week long, often in unhealthy ways, um, so that I could compete on the weekends. And yet, we always had a tournament, some, for some reason, on Thanksgiving weekend, and I needed to make weight. Um, so I would not get to eat very much, because I still had usually about five or six pounds to lose. Uh, but my family would try to goad me into eating, so I would often have the smallest piece of turkey that you can imagine, about a teaspoon of mashed potatoes, and maybe two or three green beans. I always hated Thanksgiving. Um, it's really hard to fast when everybody around you is feasting. Um, and as I imagine for my family, it was probably hard to feast when somebody's sitting at the table trying to fast. Um, in our story this morning, Jesus is also having some conflict over fasting and feasting. The Pharisees are angry with Jesus over the way that he and his disciples are and how they are engaging in both of these practices. What I want to see for us to look at this morning is to see um, how we can engage in the spiritual practices of fasting and feasting in the way that Jesus does. We especially need to know when it's the right time to fast and when is the right time to feast. And so if you have your Bible, if you would turn with me there to Luke chapter 5. Starting in verse 27, and we will go to the end of the chapter. So stand with me if you are able for the reading of God's word. And after this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. No one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires the new, for he says the old is good. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that this morning um, you would be with us in this place. I ask that you would help us to feast upon your word, that it would nourish us and strengthen us and give us what we need for the rest of our day, the rest of our week, and the rest of our lives. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. Our first point, if you're taking notes in your bulletin, is that we should feast with sinners. Um, we should feast with sinners. This is what we're meant to take away from this story, that we are to eat and to feast with sinners because this is exactly what Jesus does. Now, in biblical times, sharing a meal with somebody, it is an intimate act. It's a sign of fellowship and of hospitality. And it's a serious act. And this is still true to us today, even though we might not typically think of meals in those terms. We still understand that sharing a meal together with somebody is significant. I mean, think of who do you normally invite over to eat with? 
Who do you normally invite over to your house? Typically, we only invite people that we like, right? We invite over our family, our close friends. We usually don't invite people over that we find weird or annoying. Um, we don't want to spend a meal frustrated with our guests and looking at the clock wondering when they're going to leave. Um, we definitely don't invite our enemies or people that we hate. Well, let's look and see who Jesus feasts with in verse 27. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Jesus goes out of his way to find a tax collector. Most of us would avoid meeting, meeting with a tax collector. This would have been especially true during Jesus' day as well. Tax collectors weren't just hated because nobody liked to take, pay taxes. They were hated because of their corruption and their reputation for stealing. See, the Romans had this very intricate system for collecting taxes. So the right to collect taxes over a specific region like Israel would be sold at an auction to the highest bidder. So the person pays Rome and then they get to be in charge of taking whatever taxes they want. And so they could tax people whatever they wanted. And anything they got, they were welcome to keep. So they often functioned as well as loan sharks. They might lend out people money, but only at exorbitant interest rates. And the people who won the bid for the region, right, they would then sell smaller regions out to others for money as well. And those people would have to raise their own taxes so they could get their own money out of this. So Levi is one of those smaller, lower tax collectors. And as you can imagine in the system, um, the rich get richer and the poor get robbed. Tax collectors were very unpopular people. You would avoid a tax collector. Not just because you might walk by and they might make up a new tax that you'd never heard of that now you have to pay, but because they were also hated, especially a Jew like Levi. The Jewish people would have viewed Levi as a traitor. as a Benedict Arnold or a loyalist. He sided with the oppressor instead of with his own nation and his own people. Levi would have been hated and shunned by his own people and probably not very well respected by the Romans either since he was a Jew and not a Roman citizen. Yet Jesus, he goes out of his way to find Levi and Jesus finds Levi at work. Levi's sitting at the tax booth. He is currently robbing people and stealing from them. And Jesus goes up to him and he says, follow me. Because Jesus loves to go where sinners are. And Jesus invites Levi to come and to be his disciple. I can only imagine how Levi felt in that moment. He probably heard of Jesus. We've heard several times word about Jesus is going out throughout all of the regions. That the Messiah then comes to Levi's tax booth. And he doesn't come to lecture him. He doesn't come to condemn him for his sin. Instead, he invites Levi to come and be his disciple. Verse 28, in leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Like Peter, James, and John last week, Levi leaves it all. Levi leaves behind his lucrative job. He leaves behind the financial security to follow a wandering homeless preacher. What incredible faith Levi has. And then Levi wants to celebrate because anytime a sinner comes to faith in Jesus, we should throw a party. That's what the angels do. That's what Zacchaeus, another tax collector, will do. And that's what Levi does as well. 29, Levi makes a great feast in his house. And there's a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. Instead of hoarding all of his ill-gotten gains, Levi throws a feast and everybody seems to be invited. All of the sinners are welcome to come, even the other tax collectors that people hate. It's like a going away party. It's his retirement from being a tax collector. I'm sure everyone there is asking him, well, hey, Levi, what are you doing now? What's your next project? And he says, well, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm leaving it all behind. I'm going to go follow him. And when, Jesus, and when Luke, here when he says tax collectors and others, you might wonder who that would be. Pharisees give us a hint 
Who these others are in the next verse in 30. The Pharisees and scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So who's at this meal? Sinners and outcasts. People that the religious elite would be ashamed to be seen with. Prostitutes and drunks, addicts and junkies, people you wouldn't want your children to be friends with. This is who is at the party with Jesus. But Jesus has no problem eating with them. And Jesus doesn't simply call them to repentance and discipleship. He and his disciples also eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. It's offensive to the Pharisees. They believe that nobody should do this. We need to understand this is not just their arrogance and pride. The Pharisees are a very serious religious group. They're taking their faith and they take the scriptures seriously. And they know their scriptures. And they know that throughout Israel's history, they were sent into exile. And often their problem was they kept eating and drinking with sinners. And then they would adopt the gods and the practices of those sinners. And then they would intermarry with those sinners. And the Pharisees believe they're in the right. Righteous people should avoid those unrighteous people. We don't want that sin to seep into our nation. They need to avoid the influence of sin, just like you wouldn't want your teenagers eating and drinking with sinners and unbelievers. You might be afraid of their influence. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus feasts with sinners anyway. And what is Jesus' response to their question in 31? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus has come for this very purpose. Jesus came to eat and to feast with sinners. Jesus came to spend time with the sick. Jesus uses the metaphor of a doctor making house calls to the sick. Because only people who are sick need a doctor. Emergency rooms usually aren't filled with healthy people. They're filled with people in need and who are sick. The unfortunate irony here is that the Pharisees also need a physician. They too are sinners in need of a savior, but they believe that they're righteous. They think they're just fine. They're like a family member who's obviously sick and refuses to go to the doctor. Even though they have a fever, a cough, and all of the symptoms of someone being sick, they refuse to ask the physician for help. This is what the Pharisees do. And the Pharisees believe they're righteous as well, but their bodies are riddled with a spiritual cancer that will kill them. What's sad is that the Pharisees are also welcome at this feast. They're invited to come and to eat with Jesus. And later throughout the Gospel of Luke, you will see this. Jesus does not just eat with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is willing to eat with anyone who comes to the table. Jesus will eat with anyone who invites him. We'll see several stories in the Gospel of Luke of Jesus eating at the table and breaking bread with the Pharisees themselves. Because anyone who wants can come and eat with Jesus, but you really should recognize that you're sick. You need to recognize you're a sinner. You need to recognize that you need Jesus. And it really is amazing that anyone is allowed to go eat and feast at Jesus' table. Jesus doesn't have his disciples out at the door like bouncers who are looking for VIPs. Only the important people get to come in. Jesus doesn't keep out those who are shameful. Jesus does not keep out those who we would think of as the worst kind of sinners. Jesus doesn't keep away those people who if they walked on our doors, we would all kind of a hush would come over the place. And we think, I wonder, can you believe that they're here in church this morning? Jesus doesn't do that. He says, welcome, come in. Jesus goes right up to those people and he says, hey, come, follow me. And Jesus goes and he feasts with them. But notice the qualification that Jesus gives. Jesus is not just calling for us to live and to let live. Jesus is not saying sinners are fine and it's really not that big of a deal that they sin. We're all just the same anyway. Jesus is happy to eat with sinners. 
Jesus is happy to fellowship with sinners. Jesus is happy to eat and to drink with sinners because he loves them. And because Jesus loves them, he, look again, calls them to repentance in 32. This is why Jesus is eating with Levi. This is why Jesus eats and drinks with prostitutes and tax collectors. This is why Jesus hangs out with the worst of sinners. It's not because their sin is no big deal to him. It is because he is inviting them to, and calling them to come and to follow him. We cannot miss this part that Jesus calls us to repentance. Because some will point to Jesus eating and drinking with the sinners. They will point to the way that sinners loved Jesus and felt seen by Jesus. And they will say, well, look. We shouldn't tell sinners to repent. We should just love on them like Jesus did. We should only eat and drink with them. We shouldn't invite them to follow Jesus. We don't want to offend them. That's not what Jesus does. But Jesus also doesn't only call people to repentance. He doesn't just go up to Levi in the corner and tell him to knock it off to stop sinning. He doesn't stand up at the party and tell everyone how sinful and wrong and awful they are. He eats and drinks with them and he calls them to repentance. Jesus does both of these. We can't miss this. Some of us need to eat and drink with sinners because you're not, because I'm not. Some of us need to be willing to invite people to over our home that we wouldn't unless we knew Jesus. So as a follower of Jesus, we've left everything behind to follow him. This also means we've left behind the ability to veto who is and isn't allowed in our home. So let Jesus make that call. Some of us need to be willing to eat and drink with the bigger sinners that seem way too far gone. But some of us also are eating and drinking with sinners and we're not calling them to repentance. Some of us need to make sure that we're not just eating and drinking with those sinners, but we are inviting them to come and to follow Jesus as well. It's great to spend time with people who don't know Jesus. There's not enough Christians who make that a regular practice. But just eating and drinking with sinners is not enough. We also have to invite them to follow Jesus. We need to do both because Jesus does both. And Jesus feasts with sinners because he calls them to repentance, and we should do the same. But this is some, not just something that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. We are all still invited to come and to feast with Jesus. Every single week in churches all over the globe, the dinner bell rings. And all the weak and strong and the poor and rich, the foreigner, the citizen, the righteous and the sinner, they are all invited to Jesus' table. We call it communion, Eucharist, or more commonly the Lord's Supper. We are invited to come to Jesus' table and to eat with him. And the feast is rich. And we call it a feast not because of the abundance of food. You'll see, we, we don't have a lot of it. But because of the abundance of what is in it. It's a feast because Jesus says that the food and the cup are his body and his blood. And that we mysteriously, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, as we eat and we drink, we participate in the blood of Jesus. And we participate in the body of Christ. And even though it seems like just a little bit of juice and a small cracker. Our Savior is here with us as we partake. And it is the meal that our Savior provides for us. It is the meal that our Savior invites us to eat with Him. We are fed from His very hand. It is a feast. This is one of the reasons, personally, I think we should eat with Jesus every week as we gather as a church. Because Jesus invites us to His table. I mean, if Jesus invited you over for dinner, would you turn Him down? And you're probably, sorry, Jesus, we just ate two weeks ago. Um, I'm afraid if we eat again, it's not going to be quite as special. So get back to me in a month, and then maybe we can do this. But often this is how we can, we can do it with communion. But Jesus invites us every week as sinners to come and to eat with him. And everyone is invited to participate. And most people in this world, like Levi, are hungry and are thirsty for Jesus. Jesus. 
They long for something that can satisfy their souls. But there's nothing in this world that you can eat. There's nothing in this world that you can drink. There is nothing in this world that can satisfy you like what Jesus offers. And if you're here and if you're hungry, invite you come and eat at Jesus' table. We're going to celebrate communion after I finish the sermon, and the feast is going to be open to you. And I hope that you come and you take it in faith. As you partake of it as a believer, I also hope you recognize every time we observe communion, we are feasting with Jesus. And every time we eat of the Lord's Supper, He is feasting with sinners like you and me. So that is the feasting. We're supposed to feast with sinners because it's what Jesus does with us. But what about fasting? How does this part fit into it? Point number two. I've only got two points, um, but it doesn't mean I'm going to be shorter. <laughs> I'm just mixing it up. So point number two, we fast without Jesus. Um, we fast without Jesus. I'm going to explain what I mean by that, but that's basically what Jesus tells us. It's a simple idea that there are seasons when we're to feast and there are seasons when we are to fast. Verse 33, and he said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. The Pharisees have another complaint. Right before they're complaining about how Jesus' disciples are eating and drinking, primarily they're upset with who they're eating and drinking with, but here they're upset that they're eating and drinking at all. They don't understand, Jesus, why do you and your disciples not fast? Because fasting, it's a regular religious practice. It's a common religious practice. It's not just something that the Pharisees invented in their legalism. This is something even the disciples of John partake in. And we know John. We've studied him in the Gospel of Luke. And fasting it has a rich biblical history. Fasting, it's the practice. It's when we don't eat and instead we pray. It's not a weight loss plan. It's a spiritual practice and discipline. Daniel fasted in Daniel chapter 9 as he prayed for God's people and as he sought God's will. Jesus himself, we started, he fasted for 40 days in the wilderness to prepare himself for ministry and to resist the temptation of the enemy. The prophet Joel, in chapter 2, verse 12, he commanded that the whole nation would fast as a sign of repentance. The book of Jonah, the city of Nineveh, they call for a citywide fast in order to turn from their sins and to ask God to save them. The prophets Moses and Elijah, they both fasted for 40 days as well as they sought the Lord. King just. Josiah, Nehemiah, Ezra, all of them called for everyone to fast. Esther, she asked that all of the Jews would fast for three days before she went to the king to ask that they would be saved. There's many more. Those are just some of the references in the Bible to fasting. There's a lot of fasting in the scriptures, so we need to understand this. When the Pharisees ask this, they're asking a fair question. It's a good question. They might not have the right motives, but it's a, a question worth asking. They're saying, Jesus, we all do this. Why don't you do this? And notice what Jesus, if you notice what Jesus says in 35, 34, Jesus says to them, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Jesus does not say that fasting is wrong. Jesus does not say fasting is a legalistic practice. Jesus doesn't say his disciples will never fast and the Pharisees should stop fasting. What Jesus says is, it's not time to fast right now. Jesus says, right now it's time to feast. Fasting is going to come later. So if you take a closer look at what Jesus says, he uses the image of a wedding party or a wedding feast. It says when you're at the wedding and when the bridegroom is there, when the wedding party has all arrived, it's time to eat. Right? That was always the hardest part of the wedding reception, isn't it? It's the part I hate as a kid. Why aren't we eating? The food's here. What are we waiting for? Okay, when the bridal party is off and they're taking your pictures, you're at the reception, you see the food, the beautiful cake, the dessert, but you can't eat yet because you have to wait for the bride and the groom to come. But once they arrive, the party can start. So then we can celebrate. Then we can eat. 
And how strange it would be if the, the bride and the groom came and they said, yeah, you know, we're not eating today, we're fasting, but you, you guys go ahead. And then, you know, they kept the cake. They, they cut it, and instead of giving each other a bite or throwing it in their face, they just put it off to the side and say, well, that was good, but we were fasting today, so I don't think we'll eat that cake. We don't recognize that's, that's weird, that's strange. Weddings are times to feast and to celebrate. They're not times to be solemn. Weddings aren't times to fast, we should feast. But Jesus, throughout Scripture, he calls himself the bridegroom. And we all, as the church, we are the bride of Christ. And the wedding is coming, it is in the future. We read about the feast, and the wedding feast God will prepare in Isaiah. And Jesus said, the bridegroom is here. The Messiah has come now. It's not time to tear your clothes. It's not time to dump ash on your heads. It's not time to fast, begging for salvation to arrive. The salvation that every fast longed for. The deliverance that every fast pleaded towards. It is found here in Jesus, in the bridegroom, and now it's time to feast. Because Jesus came as the Messiah. He's the one that every Jew has longed for. The one that every follower of God has hoped and has prayed for since Adam and Eve and the curse in the garden. 400 years before Jesus was born was marked by silence and no prophets. After all of that waiting, all of that time, Jesus is finally here. And Jesus will only be here for three short years in his public ministry. These men like Levi who are going to follow Jesus as disciples and even be his apostles, they only get a very short time with Jesus. And in that short time with Jesus, it is not time to fast. It's time to celebrate. It's time to feast. Verse 35, then the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. In 35, Jesus tells them it's not always going to be time to feast. The reality is Jesus is only going to be here a short time. The bridegroom will be taken away. He'll be taken away in his crucifixion and his death. He's in the grave for three days. And he'll be taken away again as when he ascends into heavens at the right hand of the Father to prepare a place for us. And those are the days that they will fast. Again, notice Jesus does not say his disciples will never fast. Jesus just says it's not the right time yet. He says, they will fast when I leave. When I ascend into the heavens and I'm here no more, my disciples will regularly then fast as part of their spiritual practice. But that time is not now. Some of us like to misinterpret these verses so we can excuse our lack of fasting. But again, Jesus doesn't say, don't fast. Jesus just says, they're going to wait until I'm gone. Not that they can fast if they want to. He says, no, then they will. This means as followers of Jesus, we should regularly fast. Now that word regularly, that's where we have Christian freedom. It doesn't mean you have to fast once a month, once a week, or even just once a year during Lent. But it does mean that fasting should be a normal part of our rhythm and our spiritual walk with the Lord. Amen. And Jesus goes on to teach them with a parable. And like many of his parables, we misunderstand it, we misapply it. Look at verse 36. It's the new and the old garment. 36, he tells them a parable. No one tears off a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. Okay, if you get a hole in your favorite pair of well-worn jeans, you don't go buy a brand new one and rip that off and then put it on there. You've just ruined your new jeans, and now your old jeans look weird because they have a, a piece of new jean on them. And he uses another example of wine and wineskins. The 37, no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. It will be spilled. The skins will be destroyed, but the new wine must be put in fresh wineskins. So these wineskins is what they carried their wine in. It's kind of a delicate process to make and to have these. Jesus makes it clear. If you take your old favorite wineskin that you love with that wine that you like and you put some brand new wine in it, it's going to break. 
The old wineskin can't handle it. And then you're going to be out your wineskin and you're going to be out that wine because you just spilled it everywhere. So you're going to put new wine into new wineskin. What does all this mean? Why is all this talk of the new and the old and how they don't quite fit? I think Jesus is trying to teach us something significant here. He's not just trying to teach us about new and old things. Jesus is not some Fortune 500 CEO who's trying to teach us how we can implement change in organizations. Um, I don't think Jesus is just trying to teach us, hey, you should be careful as you make changes in churches. I think that Jesus is after something much deeper than that. Jesus is trying to make the point that a brand new eschatological reality is here. And what I mean by that is that the Pharisees and the people need to recognize that Jesus appearing marks the beginning of a new era. That things are not the same anymore. This is not business as usual. This is not old wine. It's not like an old garment. Jesus is not like the rabbis that they are used to. He's not like the prophets that they have had before. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised King. Jesus is their salvation wrapped up in flesh, and He's here. And because He's here, things might not look exactly how they expected it to look. And because Jesus is here, it's time to feast. Fasting will be later. And I don't think Jesus is trying to make a statement about just the new is better than the old. He's not just saying throw away the old like everyone is tossing out their wineskins or their old wine. 39, and no one after drinking old wine desires the new. For he says, the old is good. Um, some interpret this verse to say that, well, this is just about their lack of faith and not accepting Jesus and the new things. I, I don't think this verse is about their lack of faith. I don't think it's about how we hold on to traditions or our favorite songs and, you know, people just get with the times, enjoy the new things. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's what that verse means. Um, but I think when we try and make this passage seem as if it's just about old stuff and new things, we miss the radical craziness of the idea that the bridegroom is here. And what it means that Jesus has come and how different that is. I think when we reduce this passage, some Christians I, I love and really do respect and make it just about new and old things, make the same mistake as the Pharisees. And we don't understand how crazy it is that Jesus is here to be with us. After all, the fasting is the old thing. The, the not fasting is the new thing. And Jesus says the disciples are going to do both at the proper time. They don't need to mix them together. Because Jesus is here, it's time to feast and party. And when Jesus leaves, it'll be time to fast again. And now we only fast because we're waiting for the party to start back up again. So how do we apply this to ourselves today? Um, well, as Christians, we believe Jesus isn't here yet. Right? If you do believe that Jesus is here, um, you might need to have a talk. Okay, Jesus came once. He lived the perfect life and he died on the cross for our sins and was resurrected and he ascended into the heavens. And that is where he is right now in His physical glorified body. And right now we wait. Right now we pray. Right now we long for Him to come back. And one of the things that we do as we long for Him to come back is we fast. And we fast in preparation of the arrival of the bridegroom. We fast as we wait for the wedding feast that will come when Jesus returns. Let me say this another way. Okay, Thanksgiving morning, how big of a breakfast do you usually eat that day? Okay, if you're going to have your Thanksgiving feast at 2, do you eat a really big lunch? Or do you wait? Do you fast? Do you hold off on eating in anticipation of the greatness of the feast that is about to come? This is practically what we're supposed to do as believers, that we fast because we are waiting and we want to long and build anticipation, not just in our hearts and in our souls, but in our bodies for the feast that Jesus is going to bring. 
There are many good reasons that we can fast. We can fast to aid our prayers. We can fast to show our repentance. We can fast corporately as a spiritual discipline. We can also fast because we're waiting for the feast to come. And each fast is a spiritual reminder of the greatness of the feast that will come when Jesus defeats death once and for all. And we should prepare our whole selves as we wait. The world fasts these days to lose weight for themselves. We fast these days because we are waiting for our king to come. Not for health reasons, but spiritual reasons. So fast. Make yourselves ready for the feast. So where have we been uh, this morning? One, we should fast with sinners. And we should fast without Jesus because we are waiting for him to return. And we're about to have a chance as we observe communion to feast with Jesus. I hope we all recognize what a wonderful and wondrous blessing it is that Jesus has decided to feast with us. You, you bow your heads with me as we um, go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, I, I, I thank you, Lord, that you seek out sinners. Um, you don't just stand on the corner and give out a generic call. You come up to every one of us and you say, follow me as you did with Levi. You invite us to be with you. Even as you know our sins, even as you see our sins, even as we are in the middle of engaging in our sins, in your grace, you call us to be your sons and your daughters. Lord, thank you for the, the greatness of the fact that you eat and drink with us. Lord, that you do not separate yourself from us, even though you can, even though you should. Lord, we, we don't deserve to be in your presence. Because you are so holy and so wonderful. And yet, in your grace, you came down to earth to eat and drink with people who should have been struck dead for being in the same room as you. Yet you invite us to feast with you. Lord, help us to realize the, the greatness and the blessing of that. And Lord, would you also help us? Would you help us to show that same grace to others? Would you help us to invite other sinners to come and feast with us that they might see the goodness of Jesus? Lord, would you help us to, to fast? Would you help us to do so as we wait and as we long for you? Even though it's strange and it's hard and it's different and it goes against our culture because we want to obey you in your word. And your word tells us in those days we will fast, so help us learn how to do it and to do it well in a way that honors you. We pray these things in your holy and in your precious name. Amen. Amen. There's this benediction from Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God bless you. Go in peace.